Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and the glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive word to our hearts and minds and souls. Father, this morning, help me teach well. Help me be clear. Help your word and the truth that we're dealing with this morning be grasped by your saints that we know how sure the refuge is in you in this life and thus with that by the only one who can truly teach us your spirit to cause us to love what we hear and see do it in us to the glory of Jesus and to the perseverance of your saints. Amen. Starting there in verse 15, Paul turns now, let to those of us, what he is doing is that he's drawing a conclusion from what he has said in verses 7 to 14. I, I look at all that stuff in my life that was in the way of Jesus, and, and I count it as trash because I want to be found in Him. I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. I, I only want the righteousness. It's a gift. I don't want any of my own. I'm looking to the future, to that day. Oh, I haven't arrived, but I'm running. 
I'm pressing on. I'm continuing to look forward, not backward. Okay, he, he put his life up as an example. Now what he does, he draws a conclusion. And simply this. Mature Christians think that way. If you grow up into maturity, you will understand this. You'll believe it. You'll grasp it. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. What he just said. Mature people think maturely. In other words, they grasp verses 7 to 14 as the Christian life. Second part of verse 15. Oh, if you don't see it yet. If in anything you think otherwise than this. Oh, what grace. Because here's Paul assuming you're a Christian. God will bring you into it. Right now you're just an infant or you're a toddler. You're an adolescent. You're not to maturity yet. But he'll bring you there. Paul's plea in this section is, dear Christians, think according to verses 7 to 14. Have the theology of pressing on in order to get the prize that lay before you. Which means, if we think that a person who does not go on pressing on in the race to the end, they'll be saved anyway just by coasting. If we think that way, then we don't believe Paul. We've somehow been deceived into thinking that the actual daily race of a Christian is unimportant, disconnected from receiving the prize of the upward call. Glance again at verse 17 to 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on other Christians who do walk according to the example you have in us. And then these very sad words. Because many. Okay. He doesn't mean the world. He means church-going baptized persons. Many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, live their lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious resurrected body by the power that 
enables him, Jesus, to even subject all things to himself. And so what we see then in Philippians 3, in this personal letter Paul is writing to the church, is that aspect of the gospel that we call the perseverance of the saints. In other words, let me just think about it. Just as much as the New Testament teaches that no one will be saved without faith in Christ. And no one can have faith in Christ without hearing the gospel. And no one will believe the gospel when they hear it. Unless they are effectually called by God, as we saw a few weeks ago. And so, also, no one is truly called or has true saving faith if it is not a faith that perseveres to the end. We all know if you've been a Christian long enough, it's so very possible for people to be enraptured by aspects of Christianity, enamored, enculturated by it. There's elements of it that, yeah, I like that. That makes for a good society without ever personally embracing Christ. Jesus taught us this. You remember the parable of the sower? And after telling it, he says, okay, let, let, let me just really unpack what I just said here with a picture of the seed being the word of God in their soils, which are human beings. He said this in Luke 8, starting with verse 11. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Three soils are of unbelief. Two of them, belief for a while, but not saving belief, not saving faith. Only the seed that falls on the good soil yields the fruit of obedience. They run the race. They hear Paul follow his example and press on for the prize. They persevere as fruit bearers to the end. 
So here's my plan, starting now. But over the next few weeks, to spend the time on slowly unfolding the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. What I mean first by doctrine is that which is clearly taught, not peripheral, all over the place, in the Bible, and particularly here in the New Testament. The teaching, what the Bible teaches about the necessity of persevering in faith to the end. That's our goal. I don't know if it's going to be three weeks, four weeks. We'll see. So let me begin with a definition from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on Perseverance. Quote, The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. All right, but that, that's sitting in the hopper. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. And some of you, it would be not a dumb idea to ask me, Joe, you, you just spent four weeks on the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and you made it crystal clear that we can have an assurance of our salvation at the very moment saving faith arises in our hearts. And so now, you're starting to say, and will be saying, one must persevere in that faith tomorrow and next year in order to be saved. Isn't that a contradiction? The answer is no. Here's my concise answer, and we will slowly unfold it over the weeks. It's no because saving faith is supernatural. It's a gift from God. And that faith justifies once and for all at the moment that faith is birthed in the sinner by God. And here's the thing. That faith has within it perseverance. If, if I, I would have been smart, I would have grabbed an acorn because you can't see the illustration, but I don't actually have one. So, yeah, you can. See, I have an acorn. In that acorn is an oak tree. It's there. In saving faith is perseverance. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, he, he said it this way. God has respect to the believer's continuance in faith. And he is, the believer, justified by that as though it already were, because by divine establishment it shall follow. An oak tree will.
come up when you plant the acorn. And so this leads to three practical things that every Christian should grasp. The first two are real short. The third one is where we spend our time this morning. First is this. At the initial moment of saving faith, a person is justified. And therefore, assurance, a confidence of our salvation because of our faith in Christ, it is possible and attainable at the very beginning of the Christian life. Justification does not come in pieces as we have seen last month. You don't get more justified because you're more mature next month or next year than you were the year before. You're either in or you're out. You have been justified once and for all. And therefore, assurance of our salvation is possible. Should be sought if you struggle with it. Secondly, God is the one who will make sure of our perseverance in faith. I say that, well, numbers, I'm just, for, here's the one main reason. Romans 8.30. Listen. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, meaning every one of them, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. His point, even though you haven't been glorified yet, it's all one big ball of wax of salvation and God is doing it. That last clause says, if you have saving faith, you're justified. And if you're justified, then you most certainly will be saved. You most certainly in the future will be glorified in the resurrection when Jesus returns. He will certainly bring about your final consummated salvation one day. Now, if that's true, if God will certainly and eternally save those, every single one of them who have been justified, and if our justification comes through faith, which perseveres, then God will see to it that we will persevere to the end. There will be no dropouts for every person who has been justified by saving faith. The beginning of Philippians, remember? It's embedded in Paul. Not you, because you didn't begin your Christian life. You actually didn't participate in saving yourself. He who began the good work in you, He is the one who will bring it to completion.
So assurance is possible, number one. You've got to grasp it. God is the one who preserves. It's, it's one reason why in the history of theology that the perseverance of the saints, look, you should always put a slash there and say uh, the preservation of the saints. It's what God is doing. Which then brings us to the third thing now to grasp. And that is we must never think that our justification and our future glorification are somehow disconnected from persevering faith. The fact that we are justified by faith, which perseveres, means that all of us who have joined the race of faith must be vigilant to fight the fight of faith, to finish the course, as Paul said of his own life. Or as Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, lay hold of eternal salvation, Timothy. That old line, once saved, always saved, is it true? Well, that depends on what a person means by it. It's often used in a very unbiblical way. Meaning, sure it's true. Justified, you had faith, said a prayer, and then the next 40 years, no signs that you love Jesus at all. Oh, but you're going to get glorified and go to heaven one day. Not true. Once saved, always saved is true if you understand it to mean or to include God will work sovereignly to keep you trusting Him. And so our text... In Philippians, brings up this third aspect between justification and glorification. We call it the perseverance of the saints. We're all in a race. Here's our coach, Paul, on the sideline saying, run. Keep running. Keep your head forward. Don't, don't look back. Press on. To paraphrase him, Philippians, join in imitating me in this endurance race. Because there are many of whom I've often told you and now tell you while crying, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. They set their minds on earthly For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be thinking about the doctrine, the biblical teaching on the perseverance of the saints. This morning, I want to spend most of the rest of our time then in the book of Hebrews, because most of you know, hopefully, that the book of Hebrews has more to say about the perseverance of the saints than any other New Testament book. It is written specifically to a group of Christians, a church, who were about to just stop running and turning aside. So what I want to do then, just skim through the book of Hebrews and so we can, we can taste and see what the writer's dealing with 
and what his response is. So start in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, it seems like a clear sign that these people were starting to drift away from the truth. Therefore, we must. Hmm, really? Must? there. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it down the river of the world. They started to drift with the current instead of Pressing on, paddling upstream against the culture in the world. Look what he says, verse 3. How shall we, you're talking to baptized Christians, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Evidently, they're getting to the place where they're not at all like they had once been paying attention to their lives and what it means to live as a Christian in the real world in whatever context God puts us in, in whatever century. They were beginning to neglect the greatness of their salvation. They stopped paddling and started drifting with the flow of the river. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. It suggests that, and here's, he's using these different pictures, language, drifting, neglecting, and now gripping. You're losing your grip. You're not holding fast. Remember what Jesus said in the parable. The good soil, they hold fast. Here he says, it's like your fingers are coming off. Verse 6, we, we, we do, we belong to Him. We are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. If we hold fast. So evidently, the writer, the preacher, it's probably a sermon, by the way, Hebrews, he sees this danger that they're not holding firm to their confidence in the gospel, in its promises, in the hope. And so we see so far, they're drifting, they're neglecting, they're, they're letting it slip their grip. And then look at verses 12 to 14 of chapter 3. Because he shows us again what the danger really is. Take care. Be cautious. Careful. That, that means attention to. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil that is, unbelieving heart. 
leading you to fall away from the living God. Their drifting, their neglecting could result in falling away from God. They're not taking care. So he goes on, next, next sentence. But, so here's the preacher's encouragement. But, do this. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today, which means to you die. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Why? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It just makes me think, I mean, other than we know later on, some were even not even gathering to worship and to commune and to drink coffee and to read scripture. They weren't gathering at all. We'll get to that. But the others that are still gathering, what were they doing? There are a lot of churches like this. Love to fellowship. And 100% of the time, all they were doing was talking about the Dodgers or their kids or their homeschooling or politics or hobbies. I love all those topics. But is that what were they doing as a church? Evidently, according to the writer, they had lost the urgency of exhorting one another to pursue so sin subtly begins to deceive them and they begin to drift by neglecting the truth and the word of God, pricking their hearts, causing them to be careful, careful, lest there be in any one of you. And so he says in verse 14, the reason, verses 12 and 13, are crucial to pay attention to is because of verse 14. For, or because, we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He does not say, if you hold firm to the end, you will become a sharer in Christ or saved. It's not what he says. We have come, and it's a perfect tense verb in the Greek, which means it is true starting in the past, back there in your life, with ongoing, continuous ramifications up to the very present moment with the idea of it continuing on. It's true. You have. How do you know? Because it'll show that you hold fast to your original confidence, firm to the end. 
Then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says that some in the church are in danger of not finishing the race, not getting to heaven. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Some had become so negligent and careless in their spiritual race that they had no godly fear of what was really at stake as they are just floating down the river of drift. Listen to the writer's response in chapter 5, in verse 11. And about this, as he wants to teach them, because he knows that teaching, he knows that the word of God is the work of sanctification and perseverance in a Christian's life. But about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. No, he doesn't mean he's not a good teacher. He doesn't mean he doesn't know the content that he wants to explain. He doesn't mean he doesn't have words that would work. It's like trying to teach a two-year-old how to change the oil on your car. The problem's with the two-year-old. And sometimes 19-year-olds. But We have much to say. And it's hard to explain since or because you have become dull of hearing. In their indifference, in, in their drifting, in their neglect, their spiritual ears have become dulled. The Bible was becoming uninteresting to them. Their desires for the teaching and the preaching of God's Word was fading. The energy in them that obviously we'll see later, many of them had it. That energy to, to ask questions of the most important truths in all of the universe somehow was just draining out of them. And in its place was a kind of spiritual boredom the things of the world were becoming more and more appealing and attractive over the Word of God. And in 6.1 then, he goes on and he implies that the church, it lost its zeal to grow in maturity. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He's warning them because evidently many were feeling that progress and maturity and growth in the knowledge of the Word of God and in their life, their holiness, was an optional thing. Not really necessary to the Christian life. So, so far we see they're drifting. They're neglecting. Spiritually, they become dull of hearing. 
they could hear the greatest truths explicated. And all they're thinking about is lunch. They're hardened in their heart. Now flip over chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 23 to 24, shows the same danger. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together. So these people were not always this way. Jump down just a few verses to verse 32. He says, but you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, born again, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. And they did it joyfully, the text will say. In other words, when they at one time were so fired up about the value of this salvation in Jesus and there was persecution and, oh, that would mean I would expose myself to suffering for Christ if I go love them. They said, that's okay, let's go love them. They were willing to suffer for Christ because the salvation was so valuable to them. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he's warning. He's, he's turning them with the words of preaching the word of God to them. And then he gets to the core of the issue in verses 35 and 36 of chapter 10. And therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, your faith, that, that hope in the truth. Don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive. You have need of endurance, of persistence, of perseverance. They're making a big mistake in thinking. If they go on thinking, they don't need. That'd be nice to have, but don't need endurance. And then look at verse 39. It makes clear what is at stake. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's true of every person who has genuine saving faith. It's not true of every person who's a member of a church. He's being positive, which he ought to be to every member. I ought to know this. Every believer says, I know I love him. You should know this. And that's why you pay attention to the warning. Yeah, we're not those. 
pay attention. We don't shriek back. Our soul is preserved instead of destroyed in the end. So, there are only two options for every one of us who claim Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And one is that we will press on. We'll press on for the prize to which he has called us to in Christ Jesus. We will continue to press on towards spiritual growth in maturity, in knowledge, in faith, in hope, in holiness, in love. And the other option is to sit in the inner tube on the river and continue to drift into indifference, hardness of heart, and dullness of hearing. And for some, it will lead eventually to destruction. So Philippians chapter 3, And this overview, skimming through the book of Hebrews this morning, it raises a number of questions. And if it doesn't raise any questions, it might mean you've already become dull of hearing. For instance, is assurance of salvation possible? or even right to pursue? Or, what's the difference between a biblical assurance of our salvation and an unbiblical assurance of salvation? It raises the question of whether a person who actually is truly saved, born again in Christ, can they fall away from the living God, and be destroyed? And and if, if that's true and they can, then how could anyone possibly have any assurance of salvation? Or if it's not true, then you get to say, then why is the New Testament filled with warnings to baptized believers in Jesus about continue on, You'll make it if. Question. Is assurance of salvation the same thing as saving faith itself? Can you have true saving faith without assurance of salvation? See, I'm not gonna, I wasn't going to try to answer any of these questions this morning. But that one, just because I don't know where people are. The answer to that question is yes. You can be truly saved and struggle with your assurance of salvation. How do you get assurance and maintain assurance of salvation biblically? Okay. See, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or in other words, open the New Testament and read it for what's on the pages. It causes Jesus lovers to raise these questions. And so that's what we'll try to get at over the next few weeks. But let me just close this morning with an exhortation. We took this skimming through Hebrews. There's a sobriety to it. 
And it's all leading up to chapter 12, verse 1. Let us, sovereign grace, let us also lay aside. Okay, look at those brothers and sisters of faith in chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Imperative mood. Run. Press on. Endure. I want to know Christ. Paul says, in the power of His resurrection. I'm not totally there, so I wake up again today. And I, and I run. I pursue. I don't take God or my past life is a Christian, for granted. Oh, may I take care. Lest there be in me an evil, unbelieving heart leading me to fall away from the living God as, as, as I allow weights on my back and sin to make it really hard to continue down the track towards the finish. Lined Lay aside every weight. Not just sin. Weights. That's why he uses weights, because he's got running analogy in his mind also, like Paul does. The question in life is not to ask, is this a sin? It's to ask, is it hindering my running? There's a lot of things that aren't sin in and of themselves. And your really good friend may participate in that with no problem and can pursue Jesus. But you might not be able to, and vice versa. Throw off every, every weight and run with endurance. For he who promised, believer, is faithful. Therefore, your confidence in the gospel, promises. It's not a fluke. It's not a waste of your life. It's not a waste of time. Hold firm the confidence and the boasting in your hope. Let's pray and gloriously sing our hearts out to our wonderful Savior. For He who began this good work in you will bring it to Father, we thank you for such a glorious salvation. And we see why the promises that we read in the gospel, we read in the New Testament, even as by the Spirit you have them described, is unimaginable and that which we cannot even get our minds around. We're so desperate.
And so, Father, on behalf of every one of us believers, I pray, cause us to walk with you more urgently. Cause us to commune with you by your Spirit more deeply in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. To the glory of Jesus.